This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We're talking real money. Well, it's two in a row. Two Q&A days in a row. Hey, everybody. Don McDonald here talking real money, the podcast. Lots of questions. So I'm going to continue with phone calls today like I did yesterday because I at least want to get done with March for the phone calls, the ones that came into 855-935-TALK. So I have a few of those to go. Then I'll go over to the really good sounding ones that come in at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form. So a couple of things, though. I want to follow up on a call from yesterday, the uh, the, the the April 13th podcast, the, the Thursday Q&A. Someone asked about the spread between what banks earn, or, I'm sorry, uh, between what banks pay for money and what they can earn from the money. And the caller was saying, well, you know, the rates up, uh, rates aren't going up as high on the money they're lending out. Part of that reason is we're in a funky economic period. And I alluded to this. We're in a period where they can't use your savings because now all of a sudden you're pulling your savings out because some banks failed. So, and plus some of these uh, smaller banks are for those of you under the quarter of a million, are offering really nice 4 4.5% rates. So the competition is fierce for those assets. It's really fierce. And assets have fallen. Lendable assets have fallen. But on the other end, uh, there there is a decrease in demand for some things, like some commercial loans, real estate loans, commercial real estate loans. So we're in a, we're in one of those down phases for the banking industry. Will they come out of it? Yeah, someday. But uh, yeah, it is kind of a funky time. There were just a couple of reports that came out showing how much bank assets have fallen because people are pulling money out. So, uh, But again, it's one of those things that is totally unpredictable. So I don't know what we can do with that information. Knowing what we know, what does that mean for the future? And what it means for the future is we can be pretty sure it will change. But how and when? Well, nobody knows that. Okay, we're taking calls at 855-935-TALK. We take those all the time, and then we try to answer all of them on the podcast, unless the quality is just too bad. And I just had one that I tried to clean up. It was just the quality. There were cutouts. There was a dog barking in the background, and I just couldn't use it. So uh, sometimes I have to get rid of them. So be mindful of the quality, and if you really do want to get a good quality question, go to TalkingRealMoney.com, hit the contact form, and then record it using your computer mic and get your voice as close as you can. For example, if you're doing it on a, on a phone, on an Android or an iPhone, get down to where the mic is, usually at the bottom of the phone, and, and speak into that uh, from the side, and it sounds really good. All right? So now let us take our first phoned in question still from march we're going to get through march this one was from the end of march 
for us uninitiated, how would we know the difference between fiduciary responses in our own best interest and suitable? I don't see to be able to know the difference, and I don't think I'd know the difference even if I was talking to a fiduciary. When or how can I tell if what is suitable, I mean, I'm assuming that a fiduciary would always give me suitable information, and I'm aware that you're fostering a fiduciary. I'm also aware that sometimes I can get suitable information from a non-fiduciary or part-time fiduciary. So the, the, the understanding is how can I discern what suitable for me is in my own best interest relative to fiduciary. Um, they're both, they could both be suitable. They could both be fiduciary. Is there any way to tell the difference? Thank you very much. This is a great question and, and one that we get a lot. We get it so often that it is one of the reasons that I, many years ago, sat down and tried to create a form that fin financial advice providers could fill out that would tell you or at least give you a hint as to whether they were acting as a fiduciary or not. And that can be had. You can go download it. It's a PDF at TalkingRealMoney.com. Just go to TalkingRealMoney.com slash help. The other nice thing about that area of the, of the website, TalkingRealMoney.com slash help, is we've got a lot of pieces on how to find a fiduciary, what the differences are. And let's talk about a couple of those differences, particular, particularly the fiduciary standard versus the suitability standard. Suitability is the lowest standard. It means that it may not be a good product, but it's okay. It's suitable. And I'll give you the perfect example. And there are actually funds that fit this criteria. You have two funds, both of which invest in the standard and poor's 500. One fund has a 5% commission and a 1.5% per year annual fee. And there's a fund that's pretty close to that. This is, these are hypotheticals. The other fund has no commission going in. It's a no-load fund, and it has annual expenses of five one-hundredths of 1% 1 per year. So as a purely suitable investment advice provider, I could sell you the S&P 500 fund with the commission to me and the higher annual fees. And you couldn't say anything because, well, it's suitable. Whereas as a fiduciary, I would be violating the law, my fiduciary obligation to you to give you what is best for you. Not what is merely suitable, but what is best for you. I would be in violation of that. You could come after me for that. You could have great grounds to sue me because I had a product that was perfect for you. This fund with no load and five one hundredths of one percent in fees. And I sold you the fund with a commission and ridiculously high fees. 
That's the difference. Suitable doesn't mean much. And how do you tell? Well, one of the easiest ways to tell is go to your advisors, and I use that term incredibly loosely, go to your advisor's website and scroll down the page and see if they say anything on there about FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, or if they say brokerage services provided by, or we're a broker dealer or a registered representative, any of those terms are going to tell you that you have what is called, if they, are, if they do act as a fiduciary, you have a duly registered advisor. If they don't have an investment advisor license, a Series 65, then they may be the, just, the, just brokers, just under the merely suitable standard. The problem is, and uh, we're going to do a whole segment on this on uh, Saturday, basically tomorrow's podcast the 15th that'll become a podcast on monday on this whole thing of dual registration and how misleading that can be and and it really is a it's a loophole that the the regulator should do away with but the brokerage industry would have a fit they'd have a fit if uh as dual registered they had to constantly switch hats i mean this was why i invented the hats that everybody made fun of I created hats. One hat said, in your best interest, and the other hat said, merely suitable. And I think there should be a law that requires them to put on the red hat when they're selling something merely suitable and the green hat when they are acting as your fiduciary, because otherwise, how do you know? So go to TalkingRealMoney.com slash help. There's a ton of good information there, a ton. I am still working on the list of Seattle area advisors. I apologize I will get that done as soon as I am able. Um, And now we move on to our next call. Hi, Tom and Don. This is Dave from Salem, Oregon. I am thinking about um, joining the Anderson um, group of advisors. They have a infinity investing um, option. It's quite expensive. It's three thousand dollars to join, and twelve hundred dollars, thirteen hundred basically, a year thereafter. Um, and they're supposed to suggest several um, portfolios and so on. My question to you is: Have you ever heard of them? And is Do you have anything positive or negative to say? I appreciate your help. Thanks. Well, yeah, I I have heard of Infinity Investing. And uh, do I have anything positive to say about Infinity Investing? Uh, See, let me think. No, I don't even need to think about it. No, I have nothing positive whatsoever to say about what is, for all intents and purposes, a relatively complex options trading strategy that involves, oh, just, it's convoluted. And it really is a membership thing. And this is, I do not, I'm not thrilled with these membership things. Because when you pay $1,200 a year for you to actually have to go out and do all the work, it strikes me that they're getting richer, more than likely. And the other thing about Anderson advisors, they're business advisors. Um, I think they got into this as just a nice way to put some recurring income on the books because they are not registered as investment advisors. They are not 
registered as broker-dealers. So therefore, they are not legally, I know they're lawyers. This is what bothers me. But it appears to me, and I can't really dig into it as deeply as I'd like because of, you know, time constraints, um, uh, uh, assets, but, but just looking at it, they're, they're kind of giving investment advice, but they're couching it in the disclaimers that this isn't investment advice, that it's educational. Well, but it, it is investing advice and they are charging you for it. You see, it's okay to give you investing advice, but it's not okay to charge you for it unless you're registered as an investment advisor or you're licensed with FINRA. See, this. I hope you haven't gotten in yet. I really do. Uh, because I was also reading through their cancellation policy, and they're pretty strict about canceling things. They kind of want to keep your money. So um, would I have anything to do with this? Mm, no. No. No, not a thing. No. No. 10-foot pole. 20-foot pole. You know, wouldn't touch them with either. Wouldn't touch them with an infinity-length pole. I just... I just know too much about the, there are all, there was, there have since the beginning of time. I mean, we, we used to talk about a guy by the name of Wade Crook. I mean, Cook, I'm sorry. I don't know why that Freudian slip. Um, and he was, he was the taxi driver who taught option strategies. He made all his money teaching, not, not doing, not doing the, the, the old day trader firms that seem to have fallen by the wayside. Where'd they all go that taught you how to day trade? They're gone. You know why? Stuff didn't work. And sometimes it does, but it works right up until it doesn't. And who's getting rich? The people charging the fees along the way. So anyway, I'd steer clear. Thank you. Next call. Got one, one, one more call. One more. Hi, I was trying to find out how to get uh, your broker's number. I've been putting in the names and, and addresses in that ADV, but it, it keeps coming up with some kind of error that's not found. So if you can clarify how, how we can look up, you know, the fees that, that we're getting charged, that would be very helpful. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I think you may be looking for the either the SEC's website or uh, the FINRA website, if you want to look up a broker, somebody who sells securities for commissions, then you want to go to brokercheck.com, brokercheck.com. The SEC site is a little more difficult because the SEC spells advisor differently than most firms do these days. We've all tended toward advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S. But the SEC still uses the term from the 30s, which is advisor. So if you want to find the SEC site, you need to type in advisor, A-D-V-I-S-E-R info, all one word, advisor info, dot S-E-C dot G-O-V. And then on there, you have two tabs. You have individual and firm. 
You can type in a person's name and it will look them up and tell you which firm they work for. Or when you type in firm, you type in the firm's name, it will show you a list of firms that have a similar name. You can find the one that that you're looking for, find all their information. You click on them, you go to a thing that says they're registered with the SEC, and then it says latest form ADV, and then ADV part two, and then part three brochures, and you can click on any of those to get more information about them. So I hope that's what you're looking for, and I hope my answer helped. Now, we're up to April, which means I can switch over to questions that came in from TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form, just like this one. Hey, Tom and Don. Kyle from Indiana. Currently looking at getting an insurance annuity payout for my aunt's passing. The payout is going to be around 50000 The taxable amount of the annuity will be around $6,200. I'm just kind of wanting to see where I should put that money. My wife and I are maxing out Roth 401k, Roth IRA for 2023, and a HSA for 2023. Um, We currently have a brokerage account around $300,000. That is just kind of a bridge account for later in life. Um, not real sure where to kind of put this money. Kind of want to make the best use out of it. Our home is paid off. Vehicles are paid off. Currently make around 70000 a year. Just wanting to see what you guys recommend. Although it appears simple, your question is often one of the most difficult to answer honestly. It's the kind of question that the, the traditional advisor, a.k.a. stockbroker, loves because they like pontificating about what is the best thing to do with money today. Well, there is no one best thing to do with money today. The right thing to do with money depends on your situation. Now, you can't add it to a retirement plan because you're maxing all those out. Good for you. Good for you. But you do have a brokerage account. You don't really get into the specifics of the brokerage account, but that account is really important and you can't treat it as an afterthought. And that kind of feels like what it is. And then this additional money is even an after afterthought. What you have to do is build a portfolio that includes all of these disparate accounts where the assets are properly invested for each of those accounts. So to start the money from the inherited annuity should go into that brokerage account. But how to invest it is a matter of great consideration. It needs to be carefully considered. It needs to be part of an overall plan. And I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it's not. If I told you exactly where to put it, that would be the cop-out. That's the easy answer. Oh yeah, put it into an international fund. Oh yeah, put it... No. You've got to build a portfolio that is right for both your needs and your risk profile, your risk tolerance, because your needs, you may not have much need for risk. You may have a lot. I mean, it sounds on first uh, glance like you have a pretty frugal lifestyle. You're pretty smart with money. But when it comes to investing, investing should not be a what do I do today? It's what should I do forever? And what's the plan? And that's why we think that it, as you get older, the plan becomes increasingly important with each passing year. And that's also why we 
we give we give everybody some time with an advisor where they can at least look over all the parts and pieces and go, okay, this goes with that. And this goes with that. And the, Ooh, those are too risky or, Oh, those are way too safe based on your needs. Go take the risk tolerance quiz, the risk quiz at talkingrealmoney.com too. Um, but, uh, I would get it into the brokerage account and then work on the plan for how all these pieces of the portfolio fit together. Thanks for your question. And we're going to do one more that came in through talking real money. Com. Uh, hi, Tom and Don. This is uh, Brian from Connecticut. Uh, thanks for all you do uh, on the show. Listen to every podcast. Um, I'm just calling to ask a question. I'm wondering if you could share more about the fixed uh, withdrawal percentage um, strategy that I've heard you talk about uh, quite a bit. I've heard you often mention take a, a fixed percentage of 5%, for example, out every year. Uh, it just sounds like it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, it just seems simple and direct. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could just maybe expand on it a little bit to help me just understand the reasoning behind it a little more. Um, I don't know if you have any data or studies or articles that you might want to be able to, uh, share, um, that might support it. And also what does someone do when, uh, if let's say, let's say you're taking out 5%, and that 5% for a given year is much too much than one might need, let's say, in a really good uh, year for your portfolio. What does someone do with the extra? Do they um, just take out less that year than, than the fixed percentage? Or do they put the extra in cash? Or do they reinvest it? Um, so uh, that's, my, uh, that's my question. Just some more information on the fixed uh, percentage withdrawal strategy that you've I, I'm pretty sure that you've shared about and uh, and I've heard about. All right. Thanks again, uh, Tom and Don, for all you do. Bye-bye. This is a great, great question. Great way to end the podcast because uh, we love the flexible withdrawal strategy. It's not for everybody. It's not for those who really need predictability. Absolute predictability, well, that probably means you're going to give up your money and ask an insurance company to give you an allowance from your own money. At least it's predictable. The other predictable, relatively predictable course is to invest in a diversified fashion. It does it does not work if you just buy fixed income, by the way. And that is to take the 4%, the 4% rule, which is 4% plus inflation every year. You adjust that 4% by inflation every year. But we've run the numbers on both the 4% and on the 5% flexible. The two numbers are... Uh, and income early on are very, very similar. They're very similar. In both cases, if you had just a fixed income portfolio, you would, well, in the uh, in the four percent rule, a million dollars thirty years ago, in about thirty five years, would run out of money, roughly. Uh, if you had stocks and bonds with the four percent rule. You wouldn't, you would, I mean, really, you could have a portfolio. We run the numbers on a 20% portfolio of stocks, 80% bonds, and taking out the 4% plus inflation every year. We can't get to a time when you would ever run out of money. We really can't uh, using past numbers. We can only look backward. So we looked back 30 plus years. However, the income by the 30th year 
is only about $85,000 a year because you're just adjusting for inflation. In the flexible portfolio with a portfolio of stocks and bonds, let's say conservative, uh, a portfolio of 60% bonds, 40% stocks in the flexible strategy, your distributions would be 97 or 90, I'm sorry, $95,000 a year after 30 years. And if you went 60% stock, 40% bonds, because stocks out or have in the past outperformed bonds dramatically, your income would be over $130,000 a year. And with the flexible portfolio, even though you're taking out, as you get older, you, you would have taken out a lot more money, you still have millions of dollars investing a million at the beginning. You're going to have like two and a half, almost $3 million 30 years down the road. So your income's better. We like it because the income gets better, has gotten better over time. But it does early on mean that if you hit a bad year or two, your 50000 a year could go down to 40000 a year. So you have to be able to adjust your spending habits to fit that. But the scenarios we've run going out many, many years based, again, on years in the past, show you not running out of money at all and uh, with a stock and bond portfolio and still having a pretty decent amount of money to give to your heirs. So we like it, but we like both. We like the 4% rule, too. Uh, it's just the flexible has the potential to make your life a lot better. So both work. Thank you so much for the call or the question. You didn't really call it. You went to TalkingRealMoney.com and clicked on the contact form and then recorded it. So thanks for doing that. And again, if you need more help than we can provide in the confines of the podcast or the show, then just go to TalkingRealMoney.com and meet with one of our advisors. It is absolutely free. There is absolutely no obligation to do anything at all, and you will not get pressured into becoming a client. If you want to become a client, cool. But we're not going to make you, and we're not going to pressure you. I mean, we believe a lot of people can do this on their own. Some can't, some can. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being with me. And be with us tomorrow. Tom and I will be taking calls live between 3 and 5 p.m. Eastern every Saturday at 855-935-TALK. 855-935-8255. And uh, again, thanks for all the great questions. Thanks for being there. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for giving us nice reviews. I'm Don McDonald. And what do I do? Well, I talk real money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time. So please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future. So past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. That's a wrap.